Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. So easy to get lost, right? In where to start when you come back to something. So I just sort of program myself that when I come back, I'm just going to be doing this. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Last episode, I said this was the beginning of season four. Apparently, I'm bad at math because it is actually season five. All right. Today I'm talking with artist Randy Hayashi. In the interview, you'll learn a new way to think through your painting plan, a mixing palette that will help you create more dynamic color in your work, and ways to think through a painting in terms of foreground, middle ground, and background, plus a whole lot more. In this episode's bonus conversation, you'll learn how Hayashi's style has changed over the years and what habits help him make sure he's ready to paint each week. You can take a listen to that by joining the Podcast Art Club over on Patreon at any tier. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter list, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 68. All right, here we go. Hi, Randy. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? I knew that I always wanted to do something in art and design. And so after high school, I went to art college. Before going to college, I had applied to go into graphic design. And their program was full, so they said, you want to do the fine arts thing? And so I went into the, the fine arts program, and, and I'm glad I did. It was a two-year program where it was all the fundamentals like drawing and painting, and there was some sculpture, art history, all that sort of stuff. I finished that, but <laughs> where do I go now? I thought, okay, I got to do something that's more commercially viable, right, for, for the art life. And so I went into industrial design which is like furniture design, product design, that sort of thing. And I really liked the um, drawing aspect of that particular program at that time. So I finished that program. That was three years. That was a university BFA. And I ended up working for a guy who was an industrial designer, but he also did a lot of graphic design. So I kind of fell into that groove and I ended up doing a lot of logo design and stuff for him for a few years. And then I thought, I'm going to make a go of this on my own. I started doing freelance work and I did the freelance thing for a couple of years. And then I was doing a lot of work for uh, one printer in particular. And then he got so busy that he said, Hey, why don't you just come on full time? I mean, you're doing most of our work anyway. So and I was like, yes, like a steady check. I'll do it. So ended up working for him and was in the printing world, in the advertising world for probably, I guess, about 15 to 20 years. Having a job that paid the bills, how did that affect your art development? Did that give you a sort of a sense of freedom with it? I think a little bit. I think toward the end of my graphic design career, I'll say, I did feel the confidence of having that base. Because I, I mean, I had a family and you know, little kids and stuff like that. So yeah, I just needed to have that income coming in. And so like I would work in the evenings. And then when, when I started selling a little bit more in the painting world, I felt a little bit more confidence. The guys that I worked for were were great because they sort of knew that I wanted to phase out. And I mean, they were so gracious about it. And they said, yeah, sure, you know, go down a three quarter time so that you can pursue your painting a bit more. 
but I was always experimenting with the whole time thing. And I was pretty chicken about it. Like it took me a good five years before I pulled the plug entirely from the design world. But yeah, you're right. It gave me some confidence to do it. What do you like about acrylics? I like the immediacy or I think you can be a little more spontaneous with them. I'm not sure. Maybe you can with oil too. I mean, there's a few oil guys that I follow and they seem to just layer things up like crazy. But yeah, I think with acrylic, just because it dries so quick, there's just a lot of pushing and pulling that can happen. And I really like doing that. You just have to wait like five minutes and that little stroke that you laid down is dry. And so you can go back over it. It seems with oil, uh, maybe there's a bit more planning involved. But I think the big thing that I miss, of course, with oil, a bit of experimentation that I have done is just that blending capability. So even though we just mentioned that you use acrylics, but what kind of acrylics do you use? I use mostly heavy body acrylics. So I tend not to water them down too much. Like it's mostly just kind of straight out of the tube sort of thing. But I do use, I wouldn't say it's an ultra limited palette, but I do gravitate toward certain colors. How many colors generally are on your palette? There's probably about seven or eight in there. Is that generally like a warm and cool of each primary or? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I tend to use a lot of white, of course, too. Like I think everybody does. And I do avoid black, but I have been using a bit. So there's some nice things that you can do with black, but I'm in art school. They always drilled, don't use black, don't use black. So I always feel a little bad when I use black, but so I'm like, it's okay to use black. Do you have a favorite dark mix that you sort of use in place of black? I do like phthalo and burnt umber. So those are two of the seven on your palette? Yeah, and uh, dioxapine violet or purple. Well, then what type of palette do you use with your acrylics? It's a bead box. You know, you can get those for sorting uh, beads. I think there's a lot of acrylic guys that use these. They'll squeeze a whole tube of paint into one of these compartments. And because it's contained within that smaller space, it doesn't dry out as quickly. I just have everything in these separate wells of color. And then for my mixing, I've got a whole bunch of sheets of coroplast. So they're about like five inches by eight inches. And I'll mix color on that. And that way I can hold the coroplast up to my reference and sort of see if I'm in the right value range. And once that coroplast gets full of paint, I'll just set it aside, let it dry, and then I'll move to another coroplast piece. And it works great because once the paint builds up on these panels, these coroplast things, I just peel it off throw it in the garbage and then keep cycling through them. Yeah, it works really good. Do you stand when you paint them? That feels like a very dynamic interaction with your painting. Yeah, I do. I do both. I stand and I sit. So I try to mix it up because yeah, I I do get a bit sore if I sit too long and I get a bit sore if I stand too long. But so yeah, I try to mix it up. What type of brushes do you use? And then I guess almost more importantly, what is it about those brushes that you like? I use mostly flats and I always try to start off with the biggest one that I can get. And the reason I like to use flats is just because I like that chunky, chunky shape that it can leave. Because I I have had people look at my painting sometimes. They say, are you using a palette knife? And I I said, no, I just use these big square brushes. And I kind of like that. They think that I'm using a palette knife. I do like that look. And I also just like the feel of it, like how you can use a big flat brush and just sort of dab it on the canvas and it just leaves a line or you just use the corner and get a finer line so just to mix up the shapes and I've started just a little bit lately to experiment with like dabbing a paper towel in a pool of paint or something and just stamping it because I'm curious about the marks that it makes. For me I think the painting is it's a lot about mark making and that was something that they drilled into us at Art School too is this whole thing of mark making. And one of the exercises I remember they gave us was you take this big sheet 
of paper. You fold it up so that you have a whole bunch of squares or probably, you know, four inches by four inches, but you end up with like 80 squares, right? And you have to fill those 80 squares with 80 unique mark making sort of texture. And it's a great exercise because it's not just always about a brush stroke. It can be dabs, it could be smushes, it can be whatever. So I'm starting to drift back into that mark making thing. Right. Because we probably default into about five to seven and yet there are so many more possibilities. Yeah. So I love abstract paintings for that. Just to see like, how did they lay that down? Well, they obviously threw the paint there or, you know, or they blew it around with a straw there or whatever, right? So there's just so many different ways of applying paint. Could you walk us through your process? Mostly it starts with a photo. I don't do a lot of plein air painting. I do try and do a little bit every summer. And I think it's a great exercise to do. It's just, uh, I mean, photos, I like to work from photos because I like the studio paint, obviously, but photos are brutal because they just flatten out everything, right? You just don't see like you do when you're out in nature. So in taking that into account, I do a lot of Photoshop work on my photos before I paint. So I'll spend a lot of time up front. I guess you could call it my sketching is done in Photoshop. Yeah. So it's a chance for me to try out different compositions that way. So I tend to do a lot of photo bashing, I call it, and I'll mix different photos. Just got to make sure they got similar light source or or maybe it's just taking the same photo and grabbing that group of trees that's over in the photo and moving it more to the center or whatever, right? So, so there's a lot of that that happens. I tend to spend quite a bit of time. I can spend up to an hour just messing around in Photoshop, getting the composition to the way I want it. So I'll spend a lot of time composing in Photoshop and getting in the way I want. And then from there, I'll usually, depending on the size of the painting, I'll either project it or sketch it. If it's something small, just sketch it onto the canvas with pencil. And if it's something larger, then I'll project it and just outline everything in pencil. But I'm not going super detailed with the sketch, just getting down the big shapes, just so that I know where everything lies. So you've done this work in Photoshop. Now, where do you go from there? And then from there, then I start to paint. Usually what I do is I stain the canvas and I usually stain it with whatever I'm feeling, but it's usually a warmish tone. And then from there, I put darks down, usually the darkest darks, just to sort of serve as an anchor. Once those darkest darks are down, sometimes I will do a wash over those darks just to get another layer of paint on there. Because once those darks are down, you can easily put a wash of color over it and they'll still come through so long as your paint is pretty thin and watered down. Yeah. And then once I've got those those darks down and a wash of, I'll call it a mid-tone, right? Because I'm always thinking in terms of dark tones, mid-tones, light tones. So okay, I got the the dark tones down. I got like a mid-tone wash down. And then for satisfaction, I will sometimes put in like the brightest whites or the brightest brights. So that way I've got the full range, right? I've got the from dark to light. And then everything happens in between. Like they say, a lot of the the good paintings, it's about the grays. So if you can get those big shapes and those big anchors of tone down, I think that's a great starting point. It's kind of like the foundation when you build a house. You can add everything else after that. Does that mean that 
for the darks, the mids, and then those bright light whites, is that the thoughtful part? Like you need to get those right and then you can just sort of trust the rest? Yeah, that's a great question. It's that whole idea of, well, it's like squinting, right? Or backing really far away from the painting and just kind of seeing, is there something weird that's standing out here when I see it? Another great trick is I'll sometimes shoot it on my iPad or my phone and I'll just like shrink it down so that it's literally like the size of a quarter on my phone and I can just kind of like, are these things, is there something standing out here or is it holding together? And it's, it's funny how that, that works, but it works good. So you, you have the darkest dark, a mid-tone wash and the like lightest lights. Do you then work foreground to background? Do you work focal point out? Like how do you build the painting? It sort of depends on the image, but I tend to move all over the place through the whole piece because I, what I mentioned before about using that Coroplast card and when I've got a good mix of paint sitting on that card, maybe it's just that I don't want to waste the paint, but I want to see where that value exists in the whole picture, in the whole reference. So if that dark color that I have mixed up is somewhere in the sky, let's say, that I'll put that in the sky, but it also might exist in the foreground. And so I like to sort of attack the whole canvas. So after you have those three in, how do you know where to go next? Is it, is it just sort mm -hmm. of like something sparks interest? Like I want to mix that green and that's where you start? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes because I take breaks throughout the painting, like I'll paint for like two hours on it and then I'll move to something else and then I'll come back to the other one. I sort of have this thing that's built into me that I, I just come back and I'll start with a highlight. For whatever reason, I start with white. And I do that just so that, well, for one, my brushes are usually clean when they come back. So I want to start with the purest sort of things. But it's also just so easy to get lost, right? In where to start when you come back to something. So I just sort of program myself that when I come back, I'm just going to be doing this. So I'll also just leave notes for myself sometimes. Like lately, what I've been doing is I put masking tape over the painting. Like I'll make a little note like clarify this and stick it on the painting and i can end up with the, the canvas just covered in like 10 to 15 little strips of masking tape but i've got it written down i know exactly what i'm supposed to address and you're just not always ruminating like or thinking about what has to be addressed because it's just so easy to forget about i need to address that passage in the painting so if i make a note of it then i'll be sure to do it and so once i make that note of course the masking tape comes off and I just keep chipping through the painting that way. Do you have a specific focal point? Do all your paintings have a focal point? Yeah, I try to. I mean, I, I hope people <laughs> see that there's a focal point. But yeah, I always try and use that rule of thirds thing. And where those points intersect, I try to have the focal point in one of those zones. And usually that's the place of highest contrast or where the leading lines lead to or both. I try to do both just to emphasize it a lot. So leading lines and high contrast. Yeah. What are leading lines? Leading lines? Well, if you picture like a, a mountainscape and you have a river running through the trees, like those, that river is a leading line. Your eye just can't help but go down that river, right? And your eye also can't help but follow whatever strong angles are usually in the composition. So if those places can somehow meet up, that creates the focal point. But yeah, all the obvious ones, right? Like roads, rivers, glaciers for me often tend to, to be the focal point because they're white and there's usually trees around them. So you get that high contrast. And usually I try and lead people to that. You mentioned that when you're doing the drawing, 
you only put in the big shapes. Does that mean then that when you go in with your brush to add smaller shapes, like how much are you paying attention to the reference and how much are you really considering those small shapes with your brush? At the beginning, I try to get away with the biggest brush that I can. And so that way I'm not getting hung up on the details. But yeah, toward the end, I usually abandon the reference. So I'll get probably three quarters away done. And then it's like, I, I might go back to the reference every once in a while, but usually it's just like, okay, this thing has taken on a life of its own now. So it, I have to obey what it's asking for. Does that mean that those first layers are purely just building up color in some ways with that big brush? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's just about locking in the composition at that first half. I, I call it locking it in. And then after that, I tend to play a lot with the midtones, those grays and stuff. Because I think what ends up happening for me is I'll mix a color. And this is part of the beauty of acrylic is I'll mix a color. And because I put a lot of emphasis on value, if that color exists, or I should say, if that value exists somewhere else in the painting, then I'll I might just lay it in there just for a little bit of extra eye candy, right? Just to park it right beside, maybe it's a red, but the color that I mixed is a, a green, let's say. But that green is the same value as that red. So if I put it like right next door to it or, or right on top of it, then when I squint at it, it really should blend together. But you can get away with it because it's, it's the same value and it's always about value. When you're laying that red next to that green, are you trying to create form at that point? Like, are you trying to make sure that that's a rock face? Or are you just laying down color and then the kind of like the sculptural aspects mm. happen later? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Gee, think about that. I'm probably putting it there for visual interest, but I do like the happy accident that sometimes happens, especially on rocks, actually, that you brought up rocks. You can get a nice sort of reflected light thing that happens when you lay down a, a color that maybe isn't supposed to be there. And then it does become sculptural, right? Because you're presenting another facet to the rock or to the face or the three-dimensionality of whatever it is that that thing is. So yeah, like a branch or even just a shape in the water or something like a, a roll in, in a stream or something like that, right? How has having a consistent process helped you as an artist? I was just thinking of a friend who's a fellow artist and he always just say, says, trust, trust, the, uh, trust the process. And he's like, just keep going through the ugly, ugly stage. <laughs> so I think there, there is that because sometimes when you start something, you're just like, oh man, I don't know if this is going to work. But yeah, I think there's a trust that maybe happens once you have a process, like you say, it, it will come together eventually. But you know, that being said, sometimes it doesn't. And that is part of the process too. I think it, I always relate it back to other artistic disciplines like movie making, piano playing, guitar. There is so much stuff that you will throw away <laughs> or I guess thrown away, like film, right? There's so much that ends up on the cutting room floor. And uh, I still probably throw away 25% of my work, 25, 30%. doesn't make it anywhere. So, and I mean, it hurts for sure, but that is part of the process too. So maybe it's about being gentle with yourself or being just realistic and saying, you know, it doesn't always work. Right. And you say 25 to 30%. And that's probably gone down since like 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad you brought me back. 
but also a reminder to the audience that like if you're looking at your studio and being like yeah i wish i was at 30 percent toss rate like it's coming like put in time yeah you mentioned that photo references are kind of flat so then where in your process do you take into that account that into account and what do you do about it to help you as an artist unflatten them with the photos because they flatten what i usually do is i grab the foreground in photoshop and i'll turn up the saturation just to trick the eye a little bit more and then i'll actually grab the background and i'll knock that back i'll desaturate the background or lighten it up and so that way again i'm thinking in terms of foreground middle ground background because if the photo will always just flatten it also, what I'll do is I'll grab elements in the foreground, maybe it's trees or rocks or whatever, and I'll increase the size of those things. So like I'll cut out a few of the rocks and I'll just like bump them up by another 150% or something just to establish that, just to get some anchors out front. So I do that a lot. I know I'm using a lot of technology, but there's no reason why you can't do this in sketching, but you just have to be mindful of it, right? Just to remember when you are when you are working off a photograph, photographs lie. I have a, a link on my site to an article called Photographs Lie. It's a good reminder to just keep that in mind. In that photo mashup, like when you're working on that in Photoshop, you play with contrasts at all? Like how do contrasts change in a landscape foreground, middle ground, background? Yeah, I mean, uh, anything in the foreground is usually higher contrast. And then as you go back, it, it gets a little more hazy. So I do take that into account too. So sometimes I'll amp up the contrast and or, or I'll even blur. It's like squinting, right? That's another great thing about digital tools is you can sort of do all this stuff through those tools and you could just add a quick blur to it and see if it's kind of holding together. That's another little trick thing that you can do. How do you know when the photo mashup is ready to start turning into a painting? That is tough because you can get lost, especially with, I think, digital tools because you are looking at a lot of detail. That's probably the beauty of sketching. The method is a lot more rudimentary, but I think when you are using Photoshop, it's easy to get hung up with that tree, you know, whatever. It doesn't look right. Or, But uh, I just keep plugging away at it until it just sort of feels right. And I do all those checks. Like I shrink it down to the size of a quarter just to see how it looks. I'll maybe throw a blur on it to see how it looks. I'm mostly concerned with the big shapes and how your eye is moving through the composition. Clearly there's so much thinking happening when mm. you're doing this compositional photo mashup. What does this planning give you, like at this stage, what does that give you for your painting process? It gives me more confidence. Like if I have a good plan, then I can go and confidently paint and not be as worried about, it's that whole thing of moving through the ugly stage, right? With the good planning, I think it gives more freedom in painting and just being a little bit more bold. Or is there something about knowing like, no, 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 I already figured that out. Let it go. Yeah. I guess I always think about it in terms of anything else that you would make, like a house. You're always going back to blueprints. You know, you're checking, you know, this is where this belongs. And so I do rely on my reference quite a bit. You mentioned that at some point you put away the reference. What point is that? Just toward the end, because I do sort of feel like toward the end, it can start to deviate a little bit from the reference. And I, I think that's a good thing. I don't want to be so, so, so tied to the reference that there's not any room for something spontaneous to happen. So at that point, it, it might be asking for something else that the reference doesn't have. And I'm not sure if I know how to explain that, but it just sort of takes on its own sort of life of its own. Maybe what it is, it's 
like a reference is usually, let's say it's an eight by 10 photograph. I mean, I'm, a, I'm always looking at a computer monitor and it's usually pretty big, but if I'm doing a painting that's 36 by 48 or something, and your reference is quite a bit smaller, I think that thing of it taking on its own life is, has to do a lot with scale. And when you're actually seeing it in your studio at 100% on the wall, it just sort of commands a different, it commands a different, I don't know what the word is, but you know what I'm trying to say. It sounds like because of scale, the answers won't be in the reference. The answers yeah. will be on the wall. Yeah. And I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Picasso, but he said, there's a right size for everything. There's a right size for every painting. And I think that's kind of true. Like some paintings just, they don't work large, but they'll work small. It's very uh, mysterious. Yeah, I guess then how do you decide that? Do you decide that in the photo mashup stage? Like get a sense of, will this be a big painting or a small painting? I mean, sometimes it is just thrust upon you because like a commission, somebody wants a painting of whatever at a certain size. And so you just have to work it out at that size. But uh, yeah, it is strange. Like there was a time where I would try and paint a study and then try and do it really big. And yeah, I just, you know, sometimes it works and it works good, but other times it just falls apart. Does that mean because in a study, you're assuming that small can go large and that's where it falls apart? Like some things just don't go large or some things can't start small. Yeah, probably a bit of both. And maybe it's just practice because I don't practice that a lot. The, you know, painting a small one and then going big. I I think it might be practice because for some artists, I know that really, that works well for them. But for me, it doesn't work that good. Landscape comes with a lot of complexity. So for you, how do you simplify? Like you don't paint every rock, every tree. You you paint a lot of rocks and trees. But how do you simplify between the landscape and then the painting itself? Well, I do think a lot happens digitally. And a lot happens through experience. Because early on, when you're first painting, you do tend to paint everything. And I think there's maybe a, more of a, a safety in painting all the blades of grass, all the trees, all the leaves on the trees and stuff. But it gets tiring pretty quick, right? And I mean, even now, I still want to loosen up more. I still feel like I'm getting hung up on the details. I have a painting friend that sometimes I'll paint with and he's like, stop, stop, Randy, <laughs> right? Like, it's good. Just back away. And I think there's just always that balance to be struck somewhere, but there is a safety in it. and there's a fear, I think, of letting something go too soon. Like, oh, that's not very good. I think at that point it, it becomes, you're thinking about maybe the audience too much. You're thinking about other people, people's uh, thoughts about the painting too much. So there's a balance in there for sure. Your landscapes, there's a lot going on, but it's not overwhelming. It's still like bold work. So Visually speaking, if someone wants to put in a lot of information but doesn't want to do the photorealism, is that shapes are important or value is important? Like what allows your paintings to be so expressive yet also have a lot of brush strokes and information? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think it's about shapes and value. I mean, in the end, at the fundamentals, that's what it comes down to, I think. What I like to do, and I'm trying to back off a little bit on it, but is is putting all those extra little changes in value just because you can with acrylic, you know, because you can't blend as nicely as you can with oils. I think what I tend to do with acrylic is these small steps of change in value. And those values 
because it is about value. Within those values, it can be different colors. If you're starting from, let's say, a dark purple and it's on a rock and you want to move to a, a nice bright highlight, there's no reason why you can't go from that dark purple to a dark red, to a mid-tone green, to a lighter mid-tone yellow, and then to white. I mean, that was an extreme example, but as long as the values work, value is is most important. It's, you know, the quote, color gets all the glory, value does all the work. And I think it's so true. Also, what I hear you saying is that you're talking about small shifts in value so that I will still read that as a, a single shape. Yes. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great way to summarize that. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it. Well then where in your process do you decide how you'll approach the color in a given piece? Are you mostly looking at the reference and thinking local color? Like, is that the starting point? I do think in terms of local color, another great thing about working digitally from the beginning is I can often get color cues from like when I turn up the saturation on something then whatever the engine is in Photoshop, it tends to present some different colors in there. And so I go, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, actually that would work in there. So I am getting some some ideas from that. But it, I maybe should have also mentioned that early on in that digital phase, the other thing to think about with photos is the foreground or, or what's closest to you is often warm color. And then as the uh, the landscape recedes or goes back, that color gets a lot cooler. I'm definitely thinking about that a lot when I'm painting is stuff that's up in the foreground that that's warm color. And then as we go into the background and it's usually, you know, the blues and the purples and there's often a lot of white in there just to cool everything off. So, so I am trying to follow the rules. Does that mean when you're, are you pretty aware where in the painting you're painting? Like, okay, I'm in the foreground, keep it warm, keep it saturated. Yeah. But I mean, that being said, you can get away with a lot in the foreground because that's where usually most of the detail is anyways. But like if there's some shadows in the foreground, then those tend to be cool. So there's there's usually quite a mix of stuff in the foreground. But as I move to the background, like I'm not going to put a, you know, a hot red back there or something because it'll just want to come at you. But I mean, that being said, sunsets are, <laughs> you know, a good example. But I don't know if it's because we see them all the time, but maybe it's because our brain just goes, oh, that's a sunset. I'm, I'm seeing something that's really far away. But how does he get away with color that is like so hot in the background? Shouldn't that be flattening out the painting? I guess there's other tricks that happen with the composition. You're creating some, maybe some overlap or it's like trees in the foreground and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it can be done as well, <laughs> I, I guess. But I tend to yeah go warm to cool. Does that mean that when you mix a color and it's on your palette and you're looking for places to use it, do you stay in the ground you're in? Like if you mix a color that's the right value in the foreground, does that mean you lay that color generally in the foreground or does it go all over? Usually it ends up in the foreground, but it could also end up in the midground. Or sometimes what I'll do is if I've got that color and I mix that foreground color and I've got extra paint on the card, I'll just cut it with white. And I'll just cool it right off. And maybe just me being cheap and not wanting to waste paint, but I'll uh, cool off that color and then I can use it somewhere else in the painting. So once you cut it with a, another color, you can usually find another place for it in the background or in the midground. Right. And then that also creates color harmony, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Well then, do you generally start with your more saturated colors and build toward neutrals? Once I have those dark anchors down, I just kind of go with the gut or just go with where I think what it's asking for. So sometimes that means working from the background to the foreground or foreground to the background, but usually it's all over. It's usually all over because I just I just want to see it coming together quickly. Thinking about acrylics, you can do that in acrylics. Like you could start in the background in one painting or you could start in the foreground. Like it's acrylic, it'll just dry. Yeah, and I think that's where I'll just have to play with oil a little bit more to see. You know, I, maybe if I just use more medium or something with oil, it'll dry a little quicker, but yeah. When you're mixing on your mixing palette, how do you lay those out? Do you have a strategy for where you lay color down? Not really, because most of my mixing happens on the card, that five by eight inch coroplast card. But if I'm doing a bigger painting, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take little yogurt containers because I'll need bigger batches of color and I'll mix those colors in yogurt containers. And that way, if I, you know, I need to come back to a, a color for whatever reason, it's there. And then you just put a piece of tape or something over the yogurt container and it stays good. Yeah, it works, works well. It's a good little trick. That is a great trick. Your paintings have a lot of hard edges and we often think of hard edges as drawing the eye, but mm. like you have a lot of hard edges and they don't all command attention. So how do you do that? I think it's just those little value steps. That's just parking something that's really close in value to the other value that's really close. And that's what lets me get away with that. I'm looking at one of your paintings with a bunch of rocks on it. And so like rocks have a lot of different form. Do you go back and have to do like form creation at any point? Or does that happen as you build an area? It's both for sure. I find, I, I do like doing rocks and I, I like all the ways that light bounces off of them and they pick up color from whatever it's around them and stuff. So I think probably what happens when I'm painting rocks is whenever I have extra paint on my brush, I'll just be like, oh, I can get away with that on a rock, you know? So that's probably why there's always so much color on them. But probably what ends up happening is I end up laying a lot of midtones down on rocks. And then maybe at the end, I'll have to punch in one of those really hard, deep shadows just to anchor it and, you know, make it feel like a rock again so that it looks heavy. But that is the beauty of the acrylic. Just the all, always pushing and pulling and I can lay down a highlight there or I can get rid of that highlight and boom in it. We're going to transition to talking about a couple of different things in landscape. So we'll start with trees. For you, what's the trickiest part of painting trees? Getting them to look three-dimensional is tough. I usually start just with a sort of a silhouette of a tree just to get the shape. It's those branches that come at you, that come at the viewer. I think that's difficult. And, ju and just getting them to look uh, like they're natural, that they're organic, that they're not just these man-made <laughs> things. And uh, honestly, I think I need to work on the trees because trees, I mean, trees in nature, they, they grow weird, right? A lot of times they can be all over the place and I have a certain way of doing them. And uh, I don't know, I think I just want to start getting a little bit more twists and turns into the branches and things like that, because I, I think my trees tend to look a little bit architectural. Could you actually walk us through your approach to trees? Like if I was teaching trees, I would start with a silhouette of a tree. And I don't mean just like a straight up pyramid, but describe the outline of a tree. Picture a black silhouette of a tree, and then you can start building in mid-tones on top of that. I find that works pretty good. And then just to put a hint of a, a trunk in there every once in a while, like interrupt it just to get that structure in there. Yeah. But yeah, I think starting with the silhouette is works pretty well. 
how do you get the sense of a branch coming towards you? I think it's about shape and you can get good cues from your reference. So if you, you know, if you squint down and you're looking at your reference, usually a, a shape will present itself when you're squinting and just trust that shape, like paint the shape, lay it down and see if it's working. You might need to add, like if that shape is a mid-tone that you're adding, you might need to add a little bit of a highlight to that mid-tone just to describe it just a bit more. But I, I do think it's a lot about squinting in the trees because there's just so many shapes that happen within trees, right? Especially if there's like a strong, strong light on them. Just all the ins and outs of what happens with the branches and the shadows that they cast and stuff like that. So yeah, trees can just be a torture if you try to get every little bit, right? So I guess the big tip on trees is squint and just try and mimic those big shapes that are coming forward. And again, I'm thinking in terms of dark tone, mid-tone, highlight. But I probably back off on the highlights a bit more when I do trees. So it's more about the dark tones and the mid-tones. For a tree, like when we're thinking about rocks, rocks with a flat brush make sense. But with a tree, there's a lot of triangular shapes and it's a different shape to handle. How do you physically lay and then pull or push the brush? How does that flat brush interact with your surface to make those shapes? Yeah, I'll start with like chisel-like shapes, but then I'll just use maybe the corner of the brush or sometimes I'll wipe with my finger or something just to give it a softer edge. And this is maybe where I would vary the size of the brush. So if I'm using like a three quarter inch uh, flat, then I might go all the way down to like just like a quarter inch or something. And then for some of those little branches or the that sort of calligraphy type stuff, I'll go right down to a, a rigger. But it's so tempting to get carried away with the rigger, right? So just like be super judicious with those small brushes and then just like lay it down. Then do you do, are you generally working, do you do any negative painting with trees? Yeah, I do a lot of negative painting. Good questions. I really, I love that part of painting with acrylic. Oh, I know you can do it with oil too, but I, I do like to define shapes by painting the background. And that happens a lot with trees, like with tree holes and stuff, right? So there's a lot of pruning and stuff. I know I did say start with the silhouette and that is a good starting place, but also, don't be afraid to let go of that silhouette to also carve back into it, to negatively paint the tree if you need to. If it's asking for it, then just just do it, like paint over that silhouette that you made. You have trees on against a river or against something that's happening in the background. Do you paint the tree over the background or do you paint them in tandem, like puzzle pieces? Yeah, probably more so in tandem. And, and I do tend to paints around. Yeah, I do a lot of negative painting. So like trees have a couple of different roles in your paintings. Does how you handle them change if they're sort of more mid-ground or background or foreground? Yeah, foreground definitely. I give them a lot more attention. And then once I start to move to the background, like I probably what ends up happening a lot is I'll end up, you know, like it's a big swatch of green, right? But then I'll just introduce a little bit of a value change to that green and just hint at trees. And then your eye just kind of goes, oh, well, that's that's just a big hill of trees back there. Like I'm not painting every every tree. I'm just just hinting at it and trying to leave a little bit of mystery. I mean, I think that's, that is such a huge thing eh, for painters, for all of us. It's just when to stop, when to back off on the details. Like 
stop it. Yeah. it. It can be fun. It's challenging. It, you know when it works, you know when it doesn't work kind of thing. There's always something a little bit comforting because I think we have this idea, especially as beginners, that like we'll get to a point in our practice, like if we put in enough time, all the questions will just be answered and we won't have any more questions. And what I love about this conversation today is that like, no, you'll still have questions. You'll still have times where you're fight, not fighting, but working against your own tendencies or yeah. but that, that never ends. No. Yeah, never. I, I don't know any artist that would say otherwise, <laughs> like that they've hit it, right? So I guess that's maybe the fun part of it. It's kind of nice in a way that you never arrive, I guess. But yeah, it can make for frustrating moments though too, right? You paint a lot of water. Like water is often a, a component of your paintings. What is important to get right when you're painting water versus where can you play? What do you have to get right for it to read as water? Most of my water is usually rivers. I think it's about having that sort of texture up front and then as it recedes, just becomes a, a shape of value. So it's that going from, from detail to less detail. But if I, if I think of like lakes or something, I am looking at the reference quite a bit and trying to get my cues from that. But yeah, it's about just following the rules, I think. Like if you were looking at Lake Louise, usually that really aqua teal colored lake, you know, you'll have the bright teal the saturated teal up front. And then as it moves back, it gets lighter in value. So my, I guess I'm always kind of thinking of those sorts of things. So if it's a river, it's texture up front. Or if it's a lake, there's it's a texture up front, or it could be stuff under the water up front. And you're always just trying to create the illusion, right? It may not actually be there, but if you can throw in some of those cues or some of those tricks, then it just gives the painting a little bit more depth. How do you break it up into shapes? Honestly, it's whatever is in the reference. There can be a lot of shapes like within a river or something. So I think what I end up doing is I, I'll tie a lot of those shapes together. But I, I'm conscious of those shapes. When I'm tying those shapes together, when I amalgamate some of those things that they're still interesting and that it's not flattening anything out. You could think also in terms of we're going from big shapes to little shapes if we're trying to create distance. So you want to keep those big shapes probably up, up front. Well, that's not always true, but we'll say it is. But yeah, so big to small. Because you can't have small shapes up front. See, that's the thing, right? Like if you've got a lot of detail up front in your water, then you've probably got a lot of small shapes. And then as you go into the back, it just becomes a big, a bigger shape. So it really does depend on the on the reference. So it's it's definitely something to think about. Yeah. The rules don't always apply, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at. Right. It's one of the great things and one of the frustrating things about painting, that rule yeah. you just learned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't always doesn't always work. We've talked about water and trees and rocks. Do you have a favorite landscape feature? I Probably rocks. Yeah. And I probably like strong, strong light, strong cast shadows on things. If I go out shooting or something, I like to go golden hour, just when you've got nice, strong shadows. Overcast days... Not as good. I mean, you can get a nice painting from an overcast day, but yeah, I do like the hard edges of how nice bright light will we'll do that. But yeah, rocks, I mean, just because it's so easy to get away with because they can be so many different kinds of shapes and, and they usually have hard edges and soft edges and there's a lot of light bouncing around in them. Does your approach for a painting have to change if you're working off of an overcast photo or do you just have enough photos at this point that you're like, no overcast photos? I do some overcast stuff. Yeah, I mean, even on an overcast day, there is shadows. So there is there is a source of light. So you just got to 
enhance those things a little bit more or exaggerate them a bit more and, and choose a light source. Yeah, I, I recently did a few overcast days, but the shadows still present themselves. And so I think probably what, I, what I'm doing is just turning up the contrast in Photoshop and just seeing where those shadows are actually being cast and how things are being described by the flatter light, but there's still a light source. Thinking about shapes in your paintings, and when you're laying down paint with rocks, is there kind of a way you're laying down those brush strokes versus something else in the painting? I'm probably being a little more chisel-like with rocks or with, with trees even. I think once you get into the bigger passages like sky or whatever. It's, it's like you're almost mimicking whatever the shape or whatever the element is. So if it's sky, you know, you're sort of mimicking what sky is. And so maybe you're using longer strokes, but you get down to the rocks and you're sort of sort of stabbing at things a little bit more. So I think given whatever the element is how the motion kind of goes. And that being said, like sometimes in a sky, you can have very dimensional chisel-like clouds, right? So I would use the same sort of motion as I would with the rocks kind of thing. Right. But you're letting the shapes in your reference dictate how you physically lay down the paint. You're not just sort of indiscriminately putting color down, like you're laying it down somewhat consciously, shape-wise. Yeah, I think so. Do you ever at any point in your process, like just look at something in black and white or just something in gray? Yeah, I do. And that's a really good exercise, actually. In fact, when I do workshops, usually make everybody <laughs> do a grisaille, a, gr- a grayscale painting, and then apply color. And that's uh, great in the sketching process, especially, I think, is just using a grayscale thumbnail idea. I, I really like using the iPad, actually, for doing just grayscale studies. Pencil's okay, and it does work good, but with the iPad, you can adjust the grays. It's the whole pushing and pulling thing. Like, it's easy to erase, right? Like, you can just go... It's painting digitally, and you can just quickly really bang off a lot of those quickly. Do you think there's something about doing it digitally that there's such freedom in the things you can try that it actually allows you to design better? I mean, I'm biased, probably just given my background, just all the years doing graphic design, but I really do feel like it's a great tool. I know a lot of people just say it's just another tool and there's plenty of artists out there that choose good old pencil and paper and they can achieve great things, right? So for me, I think it's just because I've used it for so long. I find it a, a really powerful tool because there's just a lot you can do in it, right? Like you can try different colors and, and it's immediate. You can crop things really quickly. You can introduce different elements from other photographs, change lighting scenarios. There's a lot that you can do digitally that you can't do with just pencil and paper. So I do think what you're asking is kind of true that it just kind of opens up a little bit more. It just allows you to try a lot more things. And maybe that does mean being a little bit more creative, but yeah, I think it's just what I grew up on. So I'm used to it. You know, we've been talking about the digital part, but you, because you went to art school and because you were a graphic designer, you've done a lot of drawing. So where do you think that even though you're doing stuff digitally now, where do you think that those drawing skills have helped you? Probably in just getting, like once I have my big shapes down, once you have those anchors down and you want to paint in the trees or some of the finer details, I think drawing 
it's a good exercise in that visual measuring, right? So you know where stuff belongs when you look at your reference. And one shape always relates to another shape. And I think that's a lot of what drawing is. It's about getting those proportions right. It's about sort of visually measuring things out. And I think that has helped a lot. And if you're just drawing with charcoal or something, it is always just all about value, those grayscale things. Or even if you're just pen and ink and you're cross hatching and stuff like that, that's value too. So it's, you're always trying to describe something with black and white. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's like uh, cross training. There's, there's a lot of overlap. I don't think you have to be a good drawer to be a good painter. I mean, there's guys that I follow on Instagram and their drawings are just, wow. Like I just, they're so good. And I just, I'm a, I'm a chump when it comes to drawing. So it is a bit of a separate discipline, but there's definitely a ton of overlap. When you're thinking about value and shapes, how conscious of you are you of this is my highest value contrast, and this is going to be like a two next to a four, and this is going to be mm-hmm. a five next to a six, like those kinds of value mm-hmm. relationships? I'm probably not being super conscious about the number or the scale, but I am I am thinking about black, gray, and white. Like if I just had to boil it all down, right? Yeah, I'm thinking black, gray, and white, and how those three things in their shapes come together. Because there's a lot you can get away with within each of those things. So if there is black, there's a lot of different things you can do with that black. There's dark purples, there's dark blues, there's dark, you know, the whole spectrum. Within those grays, well, the grays, it's just gets insane, right? Because it's endless. And I think a lot of the good paintings, it's all about the those grays, those midtones. And then the highlight, usually the highlight is there's not a ton of highlight. Just because highlights tend to be so powerful, like they just demand a lot of your eye's attention. So if it's a big highlight, that's usually where the the focal point is for me anyways. Do you generally work toward like a certain number of big shapes? I don't think I'm being conscious about counting anything off or anything. But yeah, I think every image is different in in how those things sit together. In art school, they made us do these, I don't know, 20 different compositions. And they gave you a certain shape, but they gave you that shape in black and gray and white, I think. And you had to come up with, you know, 20 different things. So you're always playing with shapes, I guess. But in order to create the visual interest, sometimes the highlight has to be big or sometimes the black has to be big. You just want to create that interest. You have to have, it's a puzzle, right? So it's, it's, it always depends on the, on the reference, I think. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? If you can do it every day. It's just like anything. Like if you want to get good at piano, you got to practice every day. And so my advice is create the path of least resistance to get to the easel. So if you can have your stuff set up somewhere in a room where you can just walk in, take the lid off the palette and hit it, then that that's great. And even if it's only like 20 minutes a day or something, then that's that's okay. You know, if you do 20 minutes a day after a week. How much time is that? 140 minutes. So, but to carve out 140 minutes in one day is it's sometimes tough, right? So if you can chip away, I'm a big believer in the chipping away at stuff, create that path of least resistance. For me, it's leaving my brushes. I leave my brushes in water for weeks, if not months on end. And I'm, I'm willing to chuck brushes if I have to, but it's just 
one of those things that I don't want to have to deal with. So I'll just leave my brushes and water. It's one less step. I come into my studio, they're there, and I go. You can learn more about Randy Hayashi at www.hayashi.ca and Instagram and Facebook, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Randy. Thanks, Kelly. It was, that was really fun. We're finished with the main episode, but there's more great conversation with Randy Hayashi over at patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. Sign up at any tier and you'll get immediate access to Hayashi's bonus conversation where we discuss how his style has changed and what habits help him make sure he's ready to paint each week. Plus, you'll have access to over 20 additional bonus conversations with guests, all for the price of coffee plus tip. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 68. Thank you to everyone in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, Victoria Young, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting! 